Podcast, everyone. This is Brother Jason, and you are listening to the Apostolic Bible Study Time Podcast. We've been studying the book of Hebrews here for the last few months. Uh, We will continue today in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, if you're following along in your Bible. If you'd like to reach out to us for any reason, our email address is apostolicbiblestudytime at gmail.com. That's apostolicbiblestudytime at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash apostolicbiblestudytime. That is facebook.com forward slash apostolicbiblestudytime. Well, as I said, we have been studying the book of Hebrews here for the last couple months, but I would like to take an opportunity here to explain myself in case I have caused offense. If you listen, you will hear me from time to time say derogatory things against those that hold PhDs and the uh, educated people that come into Bible study and they write different books. I I would like you to understand that uh, (laughs) when I mention someone with a PhD, I'm not talking about Dr. Seagraves. I'm not talking about Brother Bernard of the UPC. I am not talking about these men uh, that stand up to defend the truth and have furthered their education to understand what they're saying and, as I said, to defend the truth. When I speak of the PhDs, I I don't know uh, who's listening right now. I don't know what kind of books you possess. It seems like the common thing anymore. Most people possess a Kindle, but uh, a lot of the books that you go to buy They are written by people with Ph.D. after their name or doctor before their name, and they have more degrees than a thermometer, but the problem is they don't believe the book they profess to be teaching. This is called textual criticism, and textual criticism on its own is a good thing. There are things, especially with our Gentile customs and the different things we do, it's good to go back and look at the text and understand the meaning behind the text. It's a very good thing to be involved in. But if you already don't believe the Word of God is the Word of God and you go back, all you do is cast your doubts and you throw those doubts out to the people that write your books. At my house, I have background commentaries because this is the sort of thing that interests me. But when I'm reading those background commentaries, I can tell that they have sucked the supernatural out of the Word of God. But God is a spirit. He, of course, is supernatural. He's not in the natural flesh as we are. He's not bound by what we are bound by. It is nothing for God to perform a miracle because on God's plane of existence, that miracle was nothing. We are just lesser beings, so we look at that and you either have faith that it happened, or you have doubt and believe you're reading a fairy tale. Well, I've heard enough, I have seen enough, I have read enough, and as I said, I've seen enough. I believe in a supernatural God. But once again, I am not 
speaking of Dr. Seagraves or any of the people that are standing on the Word of God trying to further our understanding. When I speak against people holding PhDs, I am talking about those that just wholly cast doubt on the Word of God and overthrow the faith of some people that don't realize what they're reading. And I hope I've made that plain. There are so many examples. We, when we read the Bible as believers, we just naturally take the Exodus saga as the Word of God says. Okay, no, no big deal. It, it happened just like the Bible says. Uh, Abraham going down into Egypt. We believe that all as it says. And so-and-so is Pharaoh at this time. And the, the Jews didn't build the pyramids. It says they built these treasure cities and all these things. We read that with a grain of faith that we possess. And we just take it at face value. Well, the Egyptologists don't. When they read this, they laugh and they mock what we believe and they have their dates that are so skewered they don't believe them themselves. But there was a secular Egyptologist, and I wish I would have looked this up before I began talking, but he took the Word of God and he overlaid the timeline with the Word of God over the evidence that we have, over the archaeology, everything that we have for Egypt, and the biblical model is what lines up. But they refuse to use it because they refuse to acknowledge that the Word of God is true. Those are the type of people that I am speaking against when I speak against the educated. It's not Dr. Seagraves, it's not Brother Bernard, it's not any of these people that are standing for truth. It's for those that are trying to cut it down. Having said that, let's go into Hebrews, the 10th chapter. When I began this, I always make it a point behind the pulpit, and when I am teaching, I try my best to keep Brother Jason out of it, unless it's something that's actually pertinent to what we are reading, I keep my mouth shut. I, it doesn't matter what I've done good. It doesn't really matter what I've done bad. But I preach and teach the Word of God. So I try to keep my personality out of this as any minister of the Word of God should do. Our personalities do not belong here. So that's why I'm giving an explanation. Sometimes I just get aggravated and it comes out, but I'm just aggravated that just because they don't have faith, they don't want you to have faith. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, the first verse. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Oftentimes when we speak of the Word of God, we speak of the Old Testament and we speak of types and shadows. Uh, 
different things in the Word of God, we see parallels from the Old Testament to the New Testament and from the law to grace. And what uh, we see these things, well, what the writer here is saying is the Old Testament was a shadow of the good things that we have been given, of the good things that were to come. But uh, Brother Seagraves, he points us over to the book of Galatians here in the third chapter, and I would like to go just a bit further. But he says, uh, Galatians, the third chapter, the 23rd verse, we're going to read down through 29. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But the point being made here is the law was like a schoolmaster. Now I have said before that the law was a placeholder, but that's not entirely accurate. Jeremiah 31 and 33, uh, God speaking here, he says, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So we read this, and then we go down. Let's go to Deuteronomy 22, verse 12. Thou shalt make thee fringes upon the four quarters of thy vesture, wherein thou coverest thy, wherewith thou coverest thyself. Or as Veggie Tales puts it in their song, put four tassels on your cloak. So we read that, well, putting four tassels on your cloak was part of the law. So exactly what did God write on the hearts of believers? We just read that we are Abraham's seed by faith in Christ Jesus, so we are included in on this. We have been adopted into the line of Israel. We have become heirs as the seed of Abraham. So what did God write on our hearts? The law was a schoolmaster. Ephesians 2 verse 15 tells us, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. So let, let's put this in modern thought and using Paul's analogy of the schoolmaster. When we are in school, we have certain rules we follow and each school has its own culture. Uh, 
you, you line up in alphabetical order, single file. They have certain rules for the water fountain, certain rules for the bathroom. Some schools have hall monitors to make sure everybody's behaving themselves and going to class and doing what they're supposed to do. Well, these are all according to the culture of the school. Uh, maybe your rule is to wear red on Thursdays. I, I went to the elementary school in Reader, West Virginia. It was the short line elementary school. So we had red shirts and we had a, a, a little fella there with a, with a, I guess silhouette is what we would call it, of a uh, old steam engine. But we had different things because that was part of our culture. But in this culture, we would go to class, and in math class, they taught us that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, when the child leaves school, they're no longer worried about wearing that red shirt on Thursdays uh, or the order of the school. They're probably not worried about single file lines anymore. Those things have all changed when they became adults and they left school, but even though that culture is no longer part of their lives, 2 plus 2 still equals 4. So it's in the same way when God writes His law on the hearts of believers, He isn't writing, put four tassels on your cloak. That was for Israel. That, that was for the children of Israel. That was for their remembrance of God delivering them out, God bringing them out of Egypt. But that was their culture and that was their ordinance. But what God is writing on our hearts is uh, such as Exodus 20 and 12. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Ten Commandments are known as the moral law, but they're for every believer, not just the seed of Abraham in the natural. The Ten Commandments are not just for Israel, but the Ten Commandments are for every believer. Paul goes on in Romans, the 13th chapter, verse 8 down through 10. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus taught us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Uh, one time they asked Jesus, which is the greatest law? And he, he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart. And the second is like unto it that you love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what God was saying in Jeremiah. He wrote this law in our hearts that we don't want to do harm to one another. Why don't you commit adultery against your wife or your husband? It is because you love that individual. You have love in your heart toward them, and you have love in your heart toward God, and you do not want to do something that is going to hurt either party.
I hope I'm making myself plain, but uh, years ago, missionary Billy Cole, and this story is going for memory. I can't remember the exact details of it, but he was in Asia, and he had baptized a man, but he had left and went on about doing whatever he was doing at the time as the man was uh, tarrying for the Holy Ghost, and Brother Cole was gone, but the man gets the Holy Ghost, and he gets up, and he does what we all have to do. He goes about his daily life. Well, what this man was, was a hitman. He was not somebody that would go to his farm and grow vegetables and sell them at the market. His job was to kill other people. And the story goes that this man was in the jungle and he was laying in wait for the other man. He did not know what he was doing was wrong. But the man walks along and he puts the sights on the man and he starts shaking. And as he's shaking, it starts breaking down inside of him and he realizes that he cannot kill this man. So the next time he goes back to church, he wants to know what these people did to him. The law of God was written in his heart to stop him from harming that other individual. The law of God was written in his heart so that he could not kill that man, even though in the natural flesh he didn't even know it was wrong. He didn't have that understanding. A lot of the problem we have with our Western culture is we think the rest of the world thinks as we do. But much of our culture is actually based on the Word of God, even if those that based our culture on the Word of God really didn't believe the whole Word, they still, there's so many aspects of our society from our court systems and the way we organize things. It, this all goes back to the Word of God. But they don't have that at that time, they didn't have that in Asia. I believe it's pretty well permeated in there now. It's not like it once was. I'm sure it has entered into their culture at this point because of the amount of Christians that are over there. But this is back, I guess it must have been in the 60s. I mean, this is before the missionaries had really gone in after World War II and planted that seed. So the man wasn't taught, do not kill. He was taught whatever their culture teaches about such things. Okay, let's read verse 1 again because we've really gotten off on a rabbit trail here. But for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged from sin once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Okay, I am going to read directly what Dr. Seagray says here in his book uh, Hebrews, Better Things. This is two paragraphs written on page 278. The height of the sacrificial system under the law was the Day of Atonement, on which the high priest offered the blood of bulls for himself and his family, and the blood of a goat for the people of Israel. 
if these sacrifices were incapable of taking away sin, we may be sure all the lesser sacrifices suffered the same limitation. The word translated, take away, the Greek aphario is a strong one. It is used to describe the way Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's servant in Luke 22, verse 50, and the way the conception took away the reproach of Elizabeth's barrenness in Luke 1 and 25. The new covenant implication is that the offering of the body of Christ was able to do what the blood of bulls and goats could not do. The blood of Jesus took away sins as decisive decisively as Peter's sword sliced off a man's ear and as Elizabeth's conception eradicated her reproach. So it is taken away just as holy. When Peter took out his sword there, we read in the the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm sorry, the Garden of Gethsemane, he pulled out his sword and we know that he struck off the ear, I believe that servant's name was Malchus, if I'm remembering correctly, but that ear was gone and that, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying about our sin, the blood of Christ took away our sins as surely as Peter took away the ear of that servant. No, the, the writer of Hebrews is not the one that mentioned it, but that is the point that Dr. Seagraves is making. Let, let's read on down here. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Over in Psalms 51, verse 16, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. Micah 6, verses 6 and 7, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousand rivers of oil? Okay, we can understand when we read the next part of this verse that the writer is not saying that God was upset with the law that he had given Israel to keep. But he goes on, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So he's making it plain. He's not talking about the law. He's just saying what kind of sacrifice does the Lord require? And then the, the writer of Micah goes on, he says, says uh, the Lord has showed thee, O man, what is good. And he, he goes off, talks about mercy and such things. But God was not tired of the law, I guess is the word we would want to use there. He was not displeased with the law, but the law was doing what it was placed there to accomplish. Let, let's read a little more. Hosea 6 and 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, let's read down through 14. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name? And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? 
ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Do ye not kindle a fire on my altar for naught? I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it. Now we're getting to the quick of the matter. Now we're getting to understand God was not displeased with the sacrifice that was given according to the law. But God did not want their blind goat sacrificed when they had a perfectly good goat over in their corral. God did not want a lame bull sacrificed. He didn't want lame animals. He wanted the best because he wanted to prove to them that he was God. They took the strongest, is what they were supposed to do. They took the strongest and they took the best, trusting God that God would still strengthen their herds the way siring that goat out would have sired and made stronger goats in their flock or the, the same with sheep. But instead they were giving the wheat to God and they were keeping the best for themselves. Let's read a little more here, verse 12. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it! And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye have brought that which was torn and lame and sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. So we can see that the Lord wasn't finding fault with the system that he had instituted, but he was sick and tired of the attitudes. And this attitude goes so far back. We can go back and we can read about Eli's sons. It says that they caused the sacrifices of God. I believe contemptible was the word used back there, but the people abhorred the sacrifices of God because of the way Eli's sons were acting. They weren't acting according to the way priests were supposed to act, but they were doing whatever their heart led them to do or whatever their lust led them to do, whatever their greed led them to do. God would only be pleased with the offering that God told them to bring. Let's read on down now. It says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now this is a quote from Psalms 40, verses 6 through 8. 
He says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I used to hear people quoting this out of Hebrews, and I, I don't know if it was a problem with my own ears or if they were really saying it this way. But for the longest time, I thought that was quoted, Lo, I come in the volume of a book. Well, it's not a book, it is the book. But he's not talking about uh, Genesis through Revelation. That's not what he's talking about, although certainly it is all God's book. But he was speaking of the Torah. He, he was speaking of the five books of Moses. These are all testified. He was the living, breathing Word of God when He walked on this earth. But as far as He wasn't talking about uh, the canon of the Bible being His body, he, uh, we, we can go back in uh, Hebrews 8, 4. For if He were on earth, He should not be a priest, and this has nothing to do with it, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So the way that is worded in the present tense, clearly the temple was still standing when Hebrews was written. The temple was still there and the priests were still working in their priesthood at that time. When we hear the... Uh, Apostles, when they went back and they quoted Scripture, they were quoting Old Testament. They were quoting the Law and the Prophets. But what we have as the New Testament was being written at that time. So let's go uh, John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Skip down to verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus Christ was the living Torah of God, manifested in the flesh, walking among His people. That's the reason why what came natural to Jesus when Satan was tempting Him in the wilderness was to come back at Him with Word. Why? Because He is the Word. That is why. That's what He spoke because that's what He was. That's what He lived. That's what He taught. That's because that's what He is. Lo, I come in the volume of the book to do thy will, O God. Let's go over to John, the sixth chapter, in the 50th verse. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Let's take a break there. Let's go over to Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter and the 3rd verse. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Jesus is that living word. This is what we are doing right now. Our souls are being fed as we commune one with another and commune with God and we read his word and we seek for understanding and we pray and we seek God's face. That's your duty. That, that's the intent God had for you. This is what God wants you to do. There's so much anymore. People get so wrapped up in the world and the world's entertainment and they want to go do the things the world does, but that's not for you. As a child of God, this is for you. And this is infinitely better. We are told to love not the world. We are told that if we love the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. James, he's a little more bold. He said, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Now why is he using that kind of language? Because when you leave the word of God and you go out and you seek after the world, football is not bad in itself. Paul said, I'm determined there's nothing unclean of itself. Baseball is not bad in itself. But we see people that go off in that direction and suddenly they are obsessed with this thing. And suddenly instead of quoting scripture, they can quote batting averages and all this other stuff. And that's honestly about as far as my knowledge goes with sports but I, I know that these people can tell you about players of the past and everything. But can they quote scripture? Can they tell you how to be saved? That's what God wants in your heart. That's what God wrote in your heart when you got the Holy Ghost. Leave the stuff of the world alone. Ye adulterers and ad adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. If you love this world, if you get wrapped up in this stuff, you are making yourself an enemy of God. But if we come in and we eat His Word, if we come in and we partake of His Word, and we seek for understanding, then God's going to be pleased with you. Then God's going to bless, and you're going to find out it's a higher high than jumping out of an airplane or anything else this world wants you to do for an adrenaline thrill. It's better than any drug you can do. It's better than any booze you can drink the word of God is quick and powerful it's in our hearts it will guide our lives that's why it is so important that's why Jesus is making it plain here that we need to ingest him we need to ingest this word he says let's go on in verse uh, 56 here we're back over in John again he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. 
Football can't give you that. There's nothing in this world that can give you that. If you don't feel a, a, a jolt in your heart when you think about spending an eternity with Jesus Christ, you need to pray through. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples when they heard this said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew it himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What, and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are Spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Amen. These words that we're reading, this isn't just ink and paper. This isn't just something we do as a hobby. This is the living Word of God written in our hearts and we are seeking after Him. Well, again, if you'd like to contact us for any reason, our email address is apostolicbiblestudytime at gmail.com That's apostolicbiblestudytime at gmail.com our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash apostolic Bible study time. Facebook.com forward slash apostolic Bible study time. Well, until next time, this is Brother Jason reminding you that Jesus is not in the Godhead. For in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2 and 9. Till next time, goodbye and God bless. Our righteousness and power. Yeah.